1: I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thank you very much, as ever, for joining us today. I recently had the pleasure of talking with Christina Laffin about her new book, Rewriting Medieval Japanese Women, Politics, Personality, and Literary Production in the Life of Nun Abutsu. This was published in 2013 with the University of Hawaii. I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thank you very much as ever for joining us today. I recently had the pleasure of talking with Christina Laffin about her new book, Rewriting Medieval Japanese Women, Politics, Personality, and Literary Production in the Life of Nun Abutsu. This was published in 2013 with the University of Hawaii Press. Now this book takes the example of Abutsu, this figure who is fascinating, really prolific, wrote in all kinds of really interesting genres, and is well known for her travel diary as a travel writer, and uses her as a lens to open up a world of really ways of thinking about the writing, the possibilities and actualities of writing of medieval Japanese women more broadly construed. So what Laffin does is she in turn introduces us to a number of different genres um, or kind of writing forms that this one figure was using over the course of her life. In each case, pointing us to the importance of understanding each one of these works, not just as a transparent um, window into the facts of her life, but rather as a set of literary conventions that if we follow them and understand them and read in that light, really open up a whole world of literary production um, and sort of literary scholarship from this period. So it's really fascinating. The Abutsu um, figure is just a, a particularly interesting figure anyway. So if you're interested in the history of um, women, women writers, or, and of sort of ways of thinking about how to weave biography into a much larger, richer kind of literary story, this is the book for you. It's also really fascinating if you happen to be interested in the possibilities of reading historical documents with a sensitivity to their existence as forms of literary production. So it was a great time talking with her about it. I really enjoyed it, and I hope you have a chance to take a look at the book, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks for listening. We're here today to talk with Christina Laffin about her new book, Rewriting Medieval Japanese Women, Politics, Personality, and Literary Production in the Life of Nun Abutsu. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Christina, and thanks very much for making the time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward to it.
0: Well, thank you. It's such a pleasure to uh, talk with you, and I'm so grateful uh, for you
1: hosting this series. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I really loved the book, so I'm happy to have the chance to talk with you about it. So along those lines, as is traditional for the channel, Christina, would you mind saying just a little bit about yourself and your background, and specifically, how did you come to work on medieval Japanese literature? Sure.
0: I had originally read uh, some diaries and tales by Japanese women in high school, actually. Uh, And I was interested, but I never thought I'd actually make it to Japan. Uh, And I knew very, very little about Japan. And so uh, it just happened that after high school... I was awarded a scholarship to go to Japan, and I was sent to the old capital, to Kyoto. And I spent one year studying there, and that sparked my interest. Uh, And when I returned, I actually went to UBC as an undergraduate and took many classes with Joshua Mosto and others who are still teaching there. And uh, this really expanded my horizons in terms of what was out there. So that was what started it. And I had focused originally on both for, for as an undergrad and then uh, in doing an MA in Japan on uh, Han women. So I was looking at earlier literature. And then it because there simply wasn't that much available in translation by medieval women. And so it wasn't until I was working on... Um, Uh, Finish. actually I'd been over to Japan uh, once and I decided I wanted to continue studying women's literature, but I wasn't quite sure where to go with it. And I happened to be introduced by a Canadian scholar to a Japanese woman who was essentially leading the field in in terms of uh, medieval women's history in Japan, Wakita Haruko, who's a real firecracker and uh, quite a uh, a really energetic and interesting person. And so it was at that point that she she brought me into this whole world of um, medieval women's history. She was primarily a historian, uh, which is not something I really wanted to do, but I, I became very interested in that um, approach that she was doing. And so as I continued my studies, I decided I should perhaps shift more to um, a later period to the medieval period in order to look at some of this literature that wasn't being examined. So it wasn't until I, I entered the PhD program at that I really began to look at the literature in depth.
1: Wow, so you've been working on uh, women and literature in Japanese history since high school.
0: Well, I first read, read Seishonigen's uh, Pillow Book. I read The Tale of Genji. Um, I, I knew a, a broadcaster in Canada, actually, the first female DJ in, in Vancouver, Joan Humphrey, who told me to read these things. Uh, and so I did as a high school student, and I couldn't believe how compelling they were even for a teenager in
1: Canada. Wow. So the book that we're talking about looks at this um, one person within this broad context as a way to open up some much larger themes and issues and concepts that inform this much larger context within the frame of or from the frame of this particular figure. And this is the figure of a 13th century woman called Nun Abutsu. So can you, um, to get us started here and to bring us into how you came to work on her, can you introduce her for us? Who is this figure, Nanabutsu, and how did you come to decide to work on her as a focus for a project like this? Sure. Um, I had originally hoped to look at mobility
0: and women because I think traditionally, almost throughout Well, throughout most of pre modern Japanese literature and the way it's been treated, women are looked at as largely immobile, as stationary creatures, particularly in classical literature, as these women who don't move and travel very much. And I was finding more and more literature that. Spoke against that, in which they were clearly traveling and writing about their experiences and traveling for very specific reasons. Um, and so that, that was where I started. I, I thought I'd look at, for my um, doctoral dissertation purposes, at women who traveled and the records they left. Uh, and as I began to look at it more in depth, I realized there was quite a bit of material out there, and so I gradually tried to pare it down. Um, and so we, for the dissertation, I looked at two women actually. I looked at one woman, uh, Nan Abutsu, who I wrote about in the book. And then another later, uh, woman, Gofka Kusa Nijo. Uh, who wrote The Confessions of Lady Nijo. There's a wonderful translation out in English. And uh, tried to look at why they traveled and what made it possible for them to travel and why they left records of this. Uh, but as I tried to think about how I could make this into a book, um, I realized that I was actually much more interested in Abutsu's story. And this is because I think it's an incredibly compelling tale. And the more I, I had at first thought that, that she wrote a travel diary and was well known as a poet. But as I began to dig a little more, I realized that she actually left almost countless records. We have thousands of her poems. Uh, We have numerous um, forms of literature that she produced in all kinds of genres. And so when I realized that she'd produced so much and so few people had actually looked at that, I saw that she must be either an anomaly or representing something larger in medieval Japanese history. So I'll give you the the brief version of her life, um, which is... is, uh, Parts of it are still open to debate, even when she was born. There's some debate about that. Um, but roughly, she was born in 1225. Uh, she was of middle-ranking um, birth, and so her, we don't actually know her, her who her parents were, but she was adopted by somebody um, who had very close ties with an imperial figure. And so he sent his uh, all of his daughters to work within the salon uh, of a princess. And she worked there and gained the qualities that you needed to survive at court. And we know this was the case because she, she wrote about how to survive at court for her diary. And we think we, she produced the first, essentially what became a career guide for women in the form of a letter to her daughter. Um, and so that's how I examined that part of her life. But she, she goes into court service. She loses faith in it at some point because she has a love affair, which is a, a things fall apart. So she decides to set off on a journey, uh, essentially to attract the attention of this lover who Love is seems to be waning, and she goes to a nunnery. She's self-tonsured herself by this point, which in itself seems quite odd. She picks up a pair of shears and cuts off her hair and sets off. And when she arrives at the nunnery, she's despairing over what to do, wondering whether she should actually become a full nun or not, Uh, and while she's dithering about this, uh, her stepfather invites her out on a journey. So she continues with him and writes about these travels, and that's one of the first examples of her travel writing. And then we lose track of her for a little while historically, uh, but she pops up later because she suddenly had uh, a child, at least one child, and we think this, she was perhaps married. Married is a much looser... Concept at, at this point, uh, it might have been out of wedlock. We don't know, uh, but it seems that she had she was impregnated while she was practicing as a lay nun in the vicinity of a very active nunnery at the time, Hokkeji. And so this already gets kind of interesting. Why she's she's uh, a nun and pregnant, uh, and then has to remove herself from the nunnery. But uh, as she's raising this one child and possibly another on the way already, um, her the husband or lover at that point deserts her and she gets introduced to one of the most influential poets of the time, Fujiwara no Tami'ie. And this changes her life, transforms it completely because suddenly she's in contact with somebody who has um, all of the kind of network that she wishes, we assume that she's wishing she could have. Uh, And through her connection with him, Initially, she's serving just as a kind of assistant to him. She's copying records for him. She's copying the tale of Genji, helping him with his work uh, because his daughter has been married off and he has a a huge um, repository of documents that he needs copied. And, and uh, it's a very active um, poetic house that he's part of, but he eventually falls in love with her and she bears at least two more children, probably three by him. And, and, over the course of their love affair, he's at least 25 years older than her, um, he begins to give her various documents, things that are very valuable from his house, as well as land holdings. So this causes a lot of problems with his earlier sons, who are, are very jealous of this, and want to guard their own place in the household. And so that's what she becomes, becomes very famous for, this rivalry between her and between her stepson and or the other stepson's. Uh, and this eventually comes to a kind of head after her husband dies, and uh, she doesn't actually get given what is owed her according to legal documents. And so she lodges a legal case first in the capital, and then she travels over two week period to, um, from the capital to Kamakura and there she fights the court case again. And this is what she's known for in history. So anybody in Japan who knows about Nanabutsu knows that she's somebody who fought for her rights in Kamakura and she's known as this kind of loyal wife and mother. And that's the figure she's, um, come to represent as a kind of uh, strong woman, uh, both for good and for bad. Uh, when she, she eventually dies, and the court case gets ruled in her favor, so her sons end up receiving both the land and the literary documents. And as of today, those documents still exist in Kyoto in a storehouse there in one of the only remaining um, courtier aristocratic families that still has all of these holdings uh, in the old capital. So that's her story in, in brief.
1: Great. Thank you so much, Christina. And I'm sure listeners can already um, get the sense that this is inherently a really fascinating figure. This is just a really, really fascinating person. And what the book is going to do is take us through not just an sort of an understanding of her life, but also um, more to the point and understanding of the work that she produced, the circumstances under which she produced it, and how we might read and understand that work in light of literary conventions, in light of the kinds of attention to documents that are more than just looking at a page and treating it as a transparent window into fact. Um, so it's a really fascinating study. Now, before we get further into Abutsu's life, you've said um, already, you talked a little bit about the genesis of the project as a dissertation and talked about you're actually initially working on two figures. So there's already a bit of a transformation from the dissertation stage to the book stage in um, focusing on um Abutsu in particular, can you talk a little bit about, um, about that transition in a little bit more depth? Were there any other major transitions or transformations in the way you were thinking about the kind of work that you wanted the book to do relative to the dissertation and how you were conceptualizing what you were arguing about and how you were approaching Abutsu herself?
0: That's a great question because it took me a long time to figure out exactly what I was trying to do. Uh, I think at first with my dissertation project, I simply wanted to show that women were active in some sense in the medieval period, both as literary producers and as physically mobile uh, women. And so I was trying to write against this idea that they were sitting at home doing nothing or supporting their husbands. And that was how things had shifted in the medieval period. Um, And this speaks to the larger problem of how medieval women are usually portrayed as kind of pale shadows to these earlier um, women who were very active in the, the court salons. And so recently I've been interested in looking at how these salons continued all the way through um, in, in different forms into the medieval period. So the dissertation project was really just looking at women in travel and what that meant. Uh, and I, I had hoped to look at many examples of that, but as the deadline grew near, I ended up looking at only two of them. Uh, and so when I, when I started thinking about how this would work as a book, uh, originally I thought, well, I'll bring in all of those other travel records because I can make a much stronger case that way and show, um, how many women were writing about their journeys and and what's interesting about that and where they were traveling and why they were traveling, because the motives um, will help us understand what was going on in women's lives. But trying to find all of those pieces and put them together um, was initially what helped lead me to see that there were all of these other works in other genres that had really not been examined. And so uh, the more I, I started looking at what else was out there and the fact that First of all, Abutsu had this other travel record, this earlier example, which has happily also been translated into English as Fitful Slumbers, Utatane. Um, I I realized that we should be considering all of these other ways in which women were writing because they seem to be adopting different kinds of of, of genres, at least in the case of Abutsu, um, and writing in forms that traditionally have not been very valued in literary history. And so the focus in in terms of Japanese um, scholarship has always been on women's diaries and how self-reflective they are, so how they reveal the self. Uh, And so works that don't do that very well, that seem more masculine in tone, that adopt more Chinese expressions, or that um, speak to more historical interest rather than just explaining a woman's life and and her kind of self-realization within that, um, aren't given very much uh, attention at all. And so realizing that there were all of these works to mine and to, to examine was what led me to, to start shifting towards abutsu. Um, but to me, that was a really scary thought because I had what I thought was was enough material for a book by expanding the dissertation. And now I was going into completely uncharted territory. Uh, and some of these works have Japanese scholarship already on them, like her two diaries, the travel diary and her earlier diary about this failed love affair. But the other works, there's almost nothing. There might be one or two articles, no commentaries, um, very, very little um, interest even in the scholarly world. And so to start picking those works apart and trying to translate them and understand what they were saying was was quite a um, a scary thing, um, because I didn't feel I could do that successfully without a lot of support. Um, I worked with many scholars in Japan. I was based at the historiographical institute there when I was um, working on the book and I I had a two year postdoc in which to to fine tune it. And I received a lot of help from scholars in Japan who were very willing to talk about it and help guide me through it. Um, And so that's, that's really what, what made it possible to, to refocus the project.
1: Thank you so much. So, as you've already mentioned, um, she was very, very prolific. She wrote a lot. And the book is going to chronicle moments in that literary production by taking us through a series of chapters, each one of which is going to focus on, at least for the most part, one of Abutsu's literary products, Thinking about how and why that product was produced and what it can tell us more broadly about the literary environment for 13th century Japanese women. So, you're going to take us through sequentially letters, memoirs, poems, and the travel diary. Now, a common thread throughout this, and a thread that you raise um, early on in the first chapter is something that alludes to, uh, or is something related to what you've just alluded to a little bit earlier, when talking about the predominant attitude toward women and their writings as one that prioritizes their writings as some sort of access to their self, right? And this is actually an issue that you bring up early in the first chapter, and you talk about Um, your approach to reading Abutsu's autobiographical self as, as you call it, a fictive structure rather than, as you say, evaluating her historicity and trying to determine who she really was. And this relationship between history and fiction and the kind of co-constitution of these two categories is such an important trope, and it's such a common thread throughout all the chapters. I wonder if you wouldn't mind um, starting us down this path of looking at these sources by first talking a little bit about this issue to get us started. So um, the... Uh, Abutsu's self is a fictive self and the relationship between fiction and history as you're conceiving it here. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I'm really happy to bring
0: that in because I think this is uh, one of the most important issues that we need to deal with as uh, literary scholars and historians, and the fact that we aren't meshing quite as well as we should. Certainly in the case of Japan, it's even worse, I think. Uh, I spent my time there, as I just mentioned, at the Historiographical Institute. I'm convinced that every all of the historians, this is a very conservative institution in Japan, thought I was simply making up things as I wrote. I, I'm sure they had no clue why I was even trying to look at these works in this way. And likewise, the literary scholars were unsure why I was working on material that they thought was essentially boring. Um, and, and so you're caught between these two. Um, and I think the, the problem, from my perspective, the problem was that I did not really consider myself a historian. I've worked on literature. Um, I, I know how to approach literature, and what I can do with that. Uh, so from, from the, the perspective of the really kind of traditional literary scholar, I think I probably wasn't doing as close readings as I should have. I'm not analyzing the literature for all of its literary value. Uh, And from the perspective of the the more traditional historian, um, I was really not basing myself in the traditional approach to um, looking at history. And so I I did feel caught between those two. uh, And I felt it was very important to define what I was trying to do here. Um, on the one hand, I do want to know what was actually happening with women's lives in medieval Japan. I want to excavate that and try to make it um, more accessible for, for people to continue to study. Um, on the other hand, I think we have to be very honest about the fact that Abutsu was a, a very capable scholar, uh, a scholar and a, a writer, and and very able to craft her own image. And so... we we must give her the benefit of the doubt in reading these works that she was very careful about how she wanted to represent herself and that she had a motive in each of these works. So even in the love story that I um, look at very early in the work, um, I'm trying to show that she's actually using this for different reasons to, she's appealing to her lover in the work, but she's also using this as a means of appealing to her husband later to show what she can do with the tale of Genji and how she can use those works in interesting ways. And so I think, um, on the one hand, we have to be very careful about using her uh, own representations of herself and understanding that those are um, fake structures that she's creating these intentionally. Um, but on the other hand, I, I think we can clearly still use her as representational in some way of women of that period. You just have to do this carefully. And, and I did feel ca- ca- caught between those two because on the one hand, she's an exception. There's no question that it's an anomaly to see a woman who produced so many works, to have so many um, diaries and uh, instructional um, instructional manual, poetry, prayers, um, all kinds of works, even legal documents that, that discuss her. Um, that That's unusual, I think, to have that much left. But I think that doesn't mean, just because she's unusual, doesn't mean we can't use her to understand a whole array of women and what was going on in their lives. Um, so that was both the, the most difficult part of trying to sketch out what I was doing, um, but I think also one of the more interesting aspects of it, and I hope offering... Um, some way for junior scholars or, or um, grad students to, to grapple with the same problem and
1: think about it. Okay, Thank you. So as we move into the further chapters, we start moving into these literary objects or products that Abutsu produce. And the first one is something called the Nursemaid's Letter. This was produced in 1264, and you've already alluded to it a little bit. This is a letter or a manual that she wrote for her daughter about how to survive as a court attendant. It's a super fascinating document um, from what I can tell from the chapter. So would you mind starting us off by just saying a little bit about this as a source, what um, what kind of source is this, and what are some of the most interesting things for you about the contents of this source?
0: I think this discovery of the nursemaid's letter um, was as it's known in, in Japanese, was what really led me to focus on abutsu because it seemed like such an unusual document to still exist. And I was shocked that more, more people had not already looked at this work. There is a doctoral dissertation that um, has a, a translation of this, so I encourage everyone to look at that. Um, And I'm, in fact, trying to retranslate it now because it is such a difficult document to deal with. So as a little bit of background, the work we think was written by Abutsu when her daughter left to to, uh, work at court. And since she had all of this experience in serving in a very uh, famous salon of the time, she wrote to her daughter and explained to her how to survive and what kind of skills she would need. Um, And these range from the very practical kind, like this is how you should, your sleeves should peek out from under the blinds. This is how you should set the combs in your hair. This is how you should send your robes. This is how much you should learn of each instrument. You should be able to have passable painting skills, things that are are quite clear. This is when you should take the tonsure and become a nun. Um, And and then it ranges from that kind of really clearly set out uh, how to do things to much more ambiguous, at least from our perspective now, ideals about how to comport yourself at court, how to attract enough attention, but not too much, how to avoid gossip, how to interact with those above you and below you, how to treat servants. Um, and, And, this is the hardest part to understand because we're worlds away now Uh, and it's with that that I'm actually struggling now as I try to translate but what she left was clearly something that was quite useful to other women because not only her daughter read it but it was clearly uh, plagiarized by other women, one woman in particular uses it in her diary as advice from her father and so we know it was quite widely circulated all the way through to the 1930s and that was the only document I had to run with in trying to translate sections of it and figure out what it was saying there was a commentary from the 1930s which recategorized everything as advice for women in the 1930s in Japan uh, and explained how they could use this document to be better mothers and to train their daughters um, and so it was a very uh, odd way of approaching it because I had to go through all of this sort of 1930s rhetoric on women in order to access this work by the by the author I was looking at.
1: So the chapter goes into a lot of detail, um, and I just want to mark some of the things that are happening here without asking you um, to talk too much about it, just to let listeners know the the breadth and the range of the kinds of... Um, discussions uh, that you're offering us here, and then I'll ask you in a little bit more detail about some of them that just kind of struck me. Um, So you talk about the competition, the competitiveness of court attendants at this period. You talk also um, at some length, in a really interesting way, about Abutsu's own service To um, a princess and her own path to a position as an attendant um, the kinds of things that she did to secure her position that then um, probably informed the advice that she gave to her daughter through the form of this text. so it's and and some of that advice is really fascinating and it ranges from you know as you said avoiding gossip to how to manage sexual relationships to everything you can imagine in between it's super fascinating Now, as somebody who um, reads and and works in the history of medicine, another thing that's really fascinating about this chapter that may be of particular interest to um, readers who are interested more broadly in health and medicine um, and women in these contexts is your discussion of the figure of, of the wet nurse. In this context, it was really surprising. It's something that may not be obvious to listeners or to readers um, that they can find in this. So I just wanted to take a moment to pull this out and shine a light on it because it's really fascinating. Can you talk a little bit about that? What do wet nurses have to do with what's going on in this text? And and why is this an important aspect of how we understand the context of this document?
0: Yes, um... The the work itself focuses on um, these kind of both practical and and what we'd see as less practical skills, but it's uh, titled. Um, the wet, the, the nursemaid's letter, or the letter from the wet nurse, um, and we have to remember that there are both dry nurses and wet nurses. The dry nurses are essentially the nannies, and the wet nurses are supposedly uh, providing breast milk for these wards. Um, we know that that wasn't the original title; it was originally called Abutu's letter, and that was it. Um, but in the diary, she distances herself from her daughter and says, "You're above the clouds in the palace, and I'm far away and uh, below you." And so we get this kind of uh, distance. Um, in this kind of humilific tone, putting herself way below her daughter. But um, the the reason that I think later uh, readers decided to call it a letter from a wet nurse is because she distanced herself in this way, and yet she was giving her her daughter all of these instructions. And I think this points to one of the, the main roles of the wet nurse in medieval Japan, which was to act as a kind of educator or instructor. So, And I, this is leading into to, uh, future directions that I'm taking, but I'm actually working specifically on wet nurses now and trying to examine the history of wet nurses in Japan because I think it's fascinating. <laughs> and because they held so much uh, political power at different points in history, so the medieval period is the peak of that. And there's references, even in, in late Heian works, to how wet nurses... Um, held uh, were seen as more powerful at court than even empresses. So they were the the, those who had imperial wards uh, were seen as the the kind of strongest women of the time. So we know that when you depended a great deal, of course, on whether this was a wet nurse to an imperial figure or a wet nurse to just a high ranking aristocrat or someone else. But the wet nurse was expected in some cases to actually offer breast milk to the the child. We don't get, I've tried to look at this comparatively in terms of um, European history, and we don't get the same kind of concern about the, the content or form of the breast, breast milk and what it actually looked like in the kind of, whether it was thick or thin and all of this kind of stuff that you see more in early modern Europe. Um, but w- we do get a lot of concern about her rank and how she will influence the child because there is this role of a surrogate parent and a guardian and an educator. And so in the case of Of imperial figures, it was a great honor to be a wet nurse. And not only would the woman benefit, but her husband would benefit politically. And so the the actual characters for wet nurse, the kind of um, the breast plus uh, the the, um, woman uh, become, in the case of the man, uh, breast plus man. So you get the same term for Man and the same reading for the, the sort of male wet nurse for the husband of the, the woman who's actually fulfilling that role. So it benefited the entire family, um, and but it also benefited the ward because they suddenly had all of these. Um, very close ties to another family that would support them at court. Uh, and the, the children are clearly very close to their wet nurses. All of the women's diaries, whether you are talking about men or women, they're, they're, uh, they they're see these as often closer to them than their parents. Uh, they often live with the wet nurse for periods when they're outside of the court. Uh, and the women clearly rely on their wet nurses very heavily when anything happens. If they're running away from a lover or moving away from court for a while, they'll often go to their wet nurse, they'll leave their belongings with the wet nurse. When when they're traveling, things like that. Uh, And so the the wet nurse is often referred to as the one person on whom they could rely. Uh, And so I think that kind of history is fascinating in terms of this very uh, interesting uh, role between the wet nurse and the ward and how that develops and how they both benefit from that.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to hear that you're doing even more work with this. That's fabulous. And I will talk with you about that
0: when you write a book about that. I think there's a lot of interesting comparisons that can be made outside of Japan. And so I'm really interested in receiving more feedback um, on other cultural contexts and and the role of the wetners there.
1: Awesome. So as we move to the next chapter, we move into a chapter that looks at um, Abutsu as lover and nun. Um, you, and you take us into a detailed accounting of the diary called Fitful Slumbers. So you've talked a little bit about this already, but um, can you start us off in our exploration of this chapter by saying a little bit about this diary? Um, specifically, what are, what, what are some of the most important things that we need to know about the contents of this diary um, to understand the arguments that you're making about it here in this chapter?
0: The diary essentially tells the tale of uh, Abutsu cutting her hair, shearing her long locks, moving away from the court and, uh, taking a kind of respite to re-examine her love affair and to try and attract her lover back. And then it ends with this tale of travel and her return to the capital in that sort of normal cycle of travel where you move away from the capital and then you return. Uh, what The two aspects of the diary that I found most interesting or that I wanted to uh, follow up on were, first of all, this really excruciating decision for her about whether she should become a full. Nun or not, um, whether she should take vows. It's all very unclear in the diary how how far she's gone in in becoming a nun. And I I always wondered what happened to her hair. I mean, she cuts it all off. Does it grow back? I don't know. Uh, Because she's odd in her life in that she takes the tonsure, it seems, numerous times and then returns to court life. So this clearly shows us that there was much more flexibility in terms of what it meant to be a nun and that there was a whole range of meanings in terms of what being a nun meant in the medieval period. So that was one aspect that I wanted to follow up on. Um, The other aspect was how she represented herself as this kind of heroine in the tale. So she places herself, this is the work that's most seen by her as as following the kind of traditional mode and style of expression of late hand work. So it it really echoes the earlier tales that were were written about these female characters and their love affairs. And so uh, she places herself in that context and then she uses... Uses the the tale of Ganji as a kind of background or almost a a sort of dictionary or vocabulary from which to draw. And then she builds her story upon that. So every single section of the work, almost every paragraph includes allusions to the tale of Genji. So it showed she had incredible knowledge of this. It it, it seemed to me that she was almost trying to prove that to her her husband, that she had an encyclopedic knowledge of the work. Uh, And then it also shows how she was able to build a tale on that, which we think echoes her own life. And then, of course, you run into, again, this problem of how much much you should take this tale, which resembles so much fiction as a kind of biographical source.
1: That's right. Great. Thank you. And you have just highlighted the two aspects of this chapter that I wanted to ask you about. So perfect. Um, In terms of the first set of issues that you talked about, you do describe the ways in this chapter that she is, as you put it, racked by indecision over um, this issue of whether to return to court life. And you talk about her sudden self-tonsure. Now, you talk about this in the broader context of understanding how tonsure and how reclusion were seen and were understood as paths for medieval women of her era. So could you talk a little bit about that? So how do we understand her decision and her... Um, understanding of the paths open to her in the context of, or in the larger context of the paths that would have been understood um, by her contemporaries and women living around that time period.
0: There's been a lot of great work being done uh, recently on what it meant to be a nun in this period. Laurie Meeks in particular has just written a wonderful book on this, Um, but I was interested in how nunhood posed one option that women could take in their lives, because we see this even in her explanation to her daughter about what the daughter's options were. You could become a wife, essentially, of somebody, um, hopefully marrying up. You could serve in the palace, um, in in somebody's salon, uh, or you could become a nun. And what I found most interesting is that Uptu takes all of these approaches and often simultaneously. So she's a nun at different points in her life, uh, and yet she remains, uh, she returns to being a wife or becomes a wife sort of in between those points of tonsure, it seems. And then she also seems to serve her patron throughout her life. So she weaves she those all into her life in very interesting ways and, and ways that I was not familiar with. Uh, in terms of tonsure, I think uh, in, in this work, we, we see it as as a, a, a way of escaping court. So first you go into reclusion, you go away to a, a nunnery, you uh, remove yourself, um, and then you threaten nunhood. We see this in earlier works often as well. Uh, and if you get the kind of response you want from a lover, well, then you can return to the, the affair, or if you don't, then you t- you become a nun, possibly. Um, traditionally, the way of seeing these options for, for women, ways of exerting or sort of coercing their partners into doing something, you have reclusion as one option, you have nunhood as one option, then you have suicide as another option, and all of these help attract attention and, and uh, possibly give you some form of agency in, in terms of the relationship. Um, but I think we see her looking at tonsure as both a way of removing herself from the court uh, and as a kind of alternate path. Um, that makes sense historically because we know that things were very active in uh, nunneries at this point. There was a kind of uh, resurgence in a uh, kind of whole uh, movement to, to um, rebuild nunneries and to uh, allow women to, to um, enter into the nunhood and make find a place for them led by people like Aeson. And so I think looking at it historically, this is an interesting point in which to become a nun. Uh, but how much that, of course, factored into her, her decision, we don't know. We, she seems to see it just as an alternative.
1: Great. Now, as you've already mentioned, one of the really important things about this diary is the way that it shows her really impressive and very exhaustive knowledge of the tale of Genji. Now, this continues to be a theme throughout the book, and it's something that you really focus on in Chapter 4. So um, let's, let's turn to that for a little bit. Now you show in chapter four, and we'll talk a little bit more about the context in which this is happening, but you're showing here that women have been treated primarily as readers of Genji, not as scholars of Genji. But in contrast, you're arguing that Abutsu should be considered as an interpreter, as a scholar of Genji on par with her male counterparts. So could you talk a little bit about that and and about the importance of that argument in the context of the larger work that you're doing with the book?
0: At times I felt like I was arguing this too hard because I'd been told by scholars she can't be considered a scholar of the tale of Genji. She just isn't. Women weren't scholars of the Genji. And so I felt it was very important to to drive this point home. We know that she had this amazing knowledge of it both from the uh, works she, she wrote and how the Genji weaves its way through that um, and through actually um, c- citations from other works like a diary by uh, Asukai Masaari in which he talks about her reading the tale of Genji and how amazing it was. And in this case, he talks about uh, an oral reading of the Genji. So she's reciting the Genji. And through that, he says she had some kind of learning, uh, uh, some she had an unusual way of reciting it. And I think what we've lost when we start thinking about scholarship is this idea that scholarship was not limited to, to recording um, written uh, ideas about the Genji or written interpretations of the Genji. It was a much broader field. And so by pointing to to as a scholar, I was also trying to point at this much larger field of scholarship that's out there, which is this idea that actually oral recitation um, and kind of... Um, Uh, question and answer, um, but this uh, sort of vocalizing the work was actually considered a form of scholarship as well, a form of commentary. And so I think we can see that in in Abitza's work because various other um, contemporaries were discussing her specific reading of it. Um, She instructs her daughter to have a comprehensive uh, knowledge of the Tale of Genji, to memorize it in full. It's clear that she did that. But the problem traditionally has been that women have been seen as passive recipients of the Genji. So the idea was that, well, her 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 daughter might have memorized the Genji, but she wouldn't be able to produce anything based on that, or she wouldn't be able to utilize that in the same sense as these male um, scholars who were writing commentaries about various aspects of it. But I really think the, the deeper we look at this, the less we realize that's the case. Um, we know that in the case of her daughter, she gave her not only um, copies of the Genji, but also in uh, ways of approaching that so digest versions uh example uh, listings of all of the um chapter headings and then even quite in-depth commentaries on the difficult parts of the work so we know she was doing a very detailed analysis of the genji based on this Um, we also have some evidence that she was not only copying it but also leading reading sessions in kamakura while she was there um the evidence is a bit shaky because these these uh Uh, copies don't still exist, um, but we see lots of references later to it. So all of her activities suggest that she was teaching it. She was um, creating forms of commentaries on this, whether they were sort of verbally enunciated or um, written down. That's unclear. Uh, and that others were taking note of this. Some of the leading Genji scholars at the time talk about actually going and seeing her and debating aspects of it with her. Um, so I really wanted to speak against this idea that women were not involved as active uh, scholarly producers of um, interpretations of the Genji, and that they were merely letting the work trickle through as they wrote their own diaries.
1: And what you're showing in this chapter is that she's not just um, an accomplished scholar of the Genji, she's also quite an accomplished scholar of poetry. So she's not just writing poems, um, but she's also producing the first female authored treatise on poetry. And the context in which this happens is a relationship, or at least in part, a relationship that she develops Um, when she um, comes back to the capital after a sojourn as a nun and after some of her travels. And this is a context in which she's meeting and catching the attention of someone you've um, talked a little bit about um, just prior to this, and this is Fujiwara no Tamaye. Am I-
0: That's right. Exactly. They're all Tames. Everybody in that line is a Tame.
1: <laughs> okay. okay, great. Um, so she catches the attention of him. He is a poet. He's a scholar. He's also a kickball player. And I, I love that. <laughs> so can you introduce um, him a little bit for us? And specifically, what do we need to understand about his relationship to a particular poetic house? A so sort of a, a um, a house of poetry in order to understand the significance of that for what comes later for um, Abutsu.
0: I think the development of poetic houses is really linked to uh, the kind of historical shifts that were happening at this time, and and the socioeconomic landscape um, in the Kamakura period, where people now now this kind of poetic knowledge had a different form of value. So, uh, in the case of Tamei, he had he he was very secure in his position, um, and he was uh, really. Situated as the kind of leading figure at court uh, when it came to being an expert of poetry, but what was happening sort of across the literary terrain is that things were becoming knowledge was becoming more and more splintered, and there was a kind of focalization in each house um, for what their. Uh, professional form of, of knowledge production was and how they could this was of course something lucrative they could do they could teach people how to everything from you know playing the biwa the lute to how to, to play kickball there was another family that was very well known for Kemari for playing kickball and indeed her husband was very accomplished apparently in keeping the ball aloft <laughs> there's lots of records talking about how many times they continued without dropping the ball um, but it was very it, the, the idea that you have a poetic house that has specific knowledge that is held by them, that can only be transmitted by them, is a relatively new development in this period. And so the idea that you can then pass on that knowledge to a select few uh, and that they have a kind of ownership of that knowledge uh, is, is a really important shift. And so the problem then becomes who gets access to that knowledge. And in the case of Abutsu, of course, it was very valuable for her to be able to access the kind of documents that were held by her husband to be able to understand them, to be Able to copy them and to be able to then teach them. This was very distressing to his other sons because this is there's all kinds of secret transmissions that need to be guarded. Uh, And they of course wanted to be the sole owners of this. So the whole problem of the poetic houses I think is very much linked to economic history and how things are changing in this period and how the actual status of many courtiers changes over the medieval period because there are less opportunities for court patronage that's not just the case for women it's for men and women um there's the even the the royal house itself the imperial family is is um splitting and so you get rival factions just as you then get of course rival factions representing each side in terms of poetic um style and and poetic uh, modes of expression and so um things become very hotly contested during this period and then Abisu inserts herself or becomes enmeshed in this by being a, a later wife of tameie who is uh, when he met her he was thinking well i'll retire and move um to the north of the capital and kind of live life slowly uh and then she seems to come on the scene and, and things heat up because uh Eventually, we, we get this quite um, problematic relationship between her and, and his son as they duke it out for the, the um, spoils of this poetic house.
1: Right. So one of the ways that she is trying to assert her authority after the death um, of Tama'ie, Is that she's establishing herself as an authority in the the tradition of this poetic house that he's head of. And she does this in several ways. And one of the ways that she's doing, that she's at least establishing this authority that you show us in this chapter, chapter four, is by writing this poetic treatise called The Evening Crane. And here's where she's positioning herself as an authority on what's called Miko Hidari. Am I? Exactly, perfect, yes. So um, can you say a little bit about? The uh, this treatise. What is important about this for us to understand, and what are the most important ways, um, perhaps, that she's establishing herself as an authority in this particular poetic tradition um, that we need to understand in order to understand what comes next. So around
0: the same time, we get two works by her. One is the poetic treatise that you just mentioned, known as the Evening Crane. It's not entirely who, sure who she was writing for. There's some some debate that she was writing it for. Personal, uh, a female patron, and others for somebody else. We're not entirely sure. Um, but what's unique about this work is that she was staking a claim to this kind of poetic um, heritage and to her vast knowledge of it, and and the fact that she was not only asked to write about that but was able to then pass that on to somebody, shows that her, her place within this house. I, I think her diary, known as the Diary of the Sixteenth Night, points to this even more clearly, where she's uh, carving out a place for herself, not only as a mother of these children, uh, but also as a wife of, of her husband, who's now dead, a widow. Um, and she does that in very interesting ways. First of all, she she lays claim to the, um, her legal rights. And she speaks about that quite openly in the work about how she's the one deserving of this and how, um, hopefully her, her case will, um, attention, appropriate attention will be given to her and she'll win this case. But she does that through a kind of poetic appeal where, uh, she uses the poetry of this lineage to prove um, that she's really the transmitter of that to her sons who will be the rightful heirs of that, which again points to this role parental role, which we see also in the case of the Wetners, of educator. And so she's acting as the kind of mother and educator of these children who will then carry on the tradition. So I think she, she uses all these really interesting forms of discourse in trying to do this. She brings in the legal issue. She brings in the, the poetic knowledge and then Uh, ideas about what it was to be a woman both in terms of being a mother and a wife and what it meant to be loyal um, and and what it meant to to act as a true educator um, in order to really lay claim to what she feels is hers
1: Thank you. And in uh, chapter five, you actually really focus on this diary, the diary of the Sixteenth Night Moon. You show us um, the context in which she's writing this. So this is this very difficult trip that you've um, already spoken a little bit about. Uh, you mentioned it's more than fourteen days and three hundred miles, and she makes this trip to Kamakura to represent her interests in a legal case against her son-in-law. Just to remind listeners, this case is event- eventually resolved in her favor, but not until after she dies. Great. Now, you, um, you talk a lot about this diary in this chapter, and it's a really, really fascinating story on lots of different levels. Um, but one of the things I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about, in part because it's one of the aspects of this I'm particularly fascinated in, is the medium of the diary itself. So for listeners, can you talk a little bit about that choice? Um, why choose to put forth these kinds of arguments, some explicit, some implicit, and do the kind of work she was trying to do through the diary with the medium of the diary. So in other words, why choose this medium um, to do the kind of work that she was doing? That's a really interesting question because she didn't have to write a diary. She could have
0: had a set of correspondence. I mean, she could have written a tale. Um, she could have written all kinds of things, but it, she she seems to have made a decision to collect all of this and and to put it into a travel diary form. So what did it why travel diary? What would that enable her to do? Well the diary form we know was being used by women from long before this. But she seems to transform it in a way that it hasn't been used until now. And this is why traditionally the work has been disparaged by scholars. It seems very boring for a diary, very uninteresting. There's no sex. There's no... Uh, I mean, it's really not a racy diary. Uh, and there's, there's no focus really on personal relationships. Um, but she takes that genre and the form... We should remember that travel uh, and the whole notion of poetic travel was really a set form too. So you travel in a kind of uh, circular fashion, going from the capital, going out to a set Um, series of poetic uh, uh, um, places. So these are kind of poetic toponyms or, or places that are well known for their poetic associations. You hit each of those sites along the way, making another poem based on all of these famous associations, and then you return to the capital. So there's a cycle there. She doesn't complete that cycle. She goes merely from the capital to this new center of Kamakura. And I think the diary allowed her to bring together all of these different forms into one. We have the kind of some of the personal element there where she's before she's leaving describing her relationship to her other family members, to her patron, uh, and to other women that, with whom she served. Uh, then we get this long series of, of poems with her children. Children showing the knowledge that they have in her effort to try and preserve that knowledge and to, to pass on more knowledge to them. And then she sets out on the, the journey. And she really interestingly uses all of the sites on the journey to argue for her case. So every time she stops at a famous shrine, she appeals to the gods uh, and hopes that things will be um, will result in her favor. Uh, when she stops at famous sites, she often cite, uh, quotes the poems that either her husband has produced or other members of his lineage have produced and brings that into her own. Uh, new poem. Uh, and then when she finally reaches her destination, she includes a whole series of correspondence with influential people in the capital, proving that other um, others in the capital were sympathetic to her. Often they're very prominent uh, poetic figures and she, she shows that they're actually sympathizing with her plight. So I think it allowed her to, to bring in all of these different aspects into something that still resembled a diary, but the result is something much more dense in some way. She quotes all of these, uh, she even quotes Chinese sources, which are are somewhat unusual in women's diaries, uh, and so we get something that doesn't look very much like the diaries that came before that, and it's for that reason that, s- that scholars have, have frowned upon the work. They see it as really interesting historically, uh, and representing her character somehow a very strong figure, but really uninteresting as a literary work, and so that, that's what I was trying to write
1: against uh, in that chapter. Thank you, and, and one of the other things I want to mention about what she's doing here, you, we've already talked a little bit about how she's using the diary and this other work that you talked about in the previous chapter as a way to cement and to kind of legitimate her position as a poet, as a um, person who is best positioned to carry on this tradition of Miguel Hidari poetry that her husband um, had been the head of prior to this. One of the ways she does that in this diary is by using a literary method that um, EA had been famous for, and this is a method called elusive variation. And I mention this mostly because the Japanese um, term for this, is much, uh, at least as I'm reading it, Honkadori? Is that right? That's right. Yes. yeah. It's my new favorite Japanese word because it sounds like hunky-dory. And so I just wanted to mention that. So uh, listeners who also like the word hunky-dory, you'll find something very similar to that in Chapter 5. It's also a very brilliant way of reading this diary from the perspective of literary language and elusiveness. But I also just like that it sounds like (laughs) hunky-dory, and I needed to mention that um, to the world. Okay, so as we move um, from these chapters in the case studies, we move into an epilogue that looks at Abutsu's legacy. Now you look closely at the ways um, that her works have been read and interpreted in the past 750 or so years um, since her life. And you look at this um, from the uh, 17th century, 18th, 19th, World War II, and later. What are some of the most important ways... Um, that her work has been interpreted, that we need to understand in order to understand those aspects of her legacy that you feel are perhaps most significant um, as we move forward?
0: Well, there's two main ways that Abbotta's been read, and it all depends on what works we use to access uh, her. The, The main thing to remember is that she's never been considered she, she was considered a very important poet, and her travel diary has always been part of the school curriculum. It's, it's considered a very influential work, and something new being written by women, often seen as representative of the medieval period—a kind of new direction. Um, but her, as as a, a scholar or a, a writer, she hasn't been given much value. As as a woman, she's been hailed by. Um, men essentially throughout the ages who are very interested in uh using her as an example of what what women should aspire to in terms of being either a better mother or a better wife but this switches at different points in history so that kind of a reading carries through uh until really the mid i think about 1960 or so uh and and then at that point a new uh work is discovered, which is highly critical of Abutsu. It's by another one of uh, Tamiiya's sons. And when this work comes to light, scholars suddenly um, turn on Abutsu and uh, deem her a really uh, the kind of meddling wife, a gold digger, the, the trophy wife initially, who becomes this real gold digger who's out to get Tamiiya's fortunes. And so we get this shift, but it, essentially it's the same thing. She's either as the perfect woman or as this kind of evil woman. And there's even articles about Abutsu which call her the evil woman. Abutsu, and then go on to explain why this is the case. Um, but I think what's most interesting to me is how her works get used throughout history as examples for women. And this happens all through early early modern period um, with usually fathers copying her works for their daughters as examples. Uh, This carries through all the way through the 1930s when we still see this kind of career guide being promoted for women and beyond. So she gets held up as an example for women historically, and her works get read quite transparently as representing her character. Um, and so I think that's where um, more work still needs to be done in terms of understanding why these works were written and, and what can be done with them and, and uh, what else we can discover about medieval women based on her.
1: And speaking of the more work that needs to be done, I think this really nicely leads us into um, really the last question I wanted to ask you before we move to our wrap-up and conclusion. And that's something that speaks to another legacy of Abutu's work and also a legacy of your work here. And that is um, the ways that we can use this to open up future work, um, more work in understanding women's writing in the medieval period. So along those lines, for you, um, as somebody working in this field and really pioneering work in this field, what do you see as the most promising areas of research within this larger field um, that you would want to mention for other scholars, um, especially younger scholars, graduate students, who might want to get into or who might be interested in working on women's literature in medieval Japan? What are some of the most exciting areas of that field, um, in your opinion?
0: I think the most exciting aspect of working on uh, medieval history and medieval women, and particularly medieval literature in Japan, uh, or or written by uh, Japanese women, is this idea that it's a very rich field that has been almost completely untapped. And so uh, there's so much more interesting work to be done. I've looked at Abutsu here, but I can tell you about seven or eight other women, at the very least, who have written. Uh, amazing diaries, uh, poetry collections, all kinds of other sources, uh, most of which remain untranslated and largely unexamined. So I would really encourage grad students um, and others out there who are who have any interest in uh, women's literature to, to follow up on that. And that goes beyond women's literature. I think when we're looking at the medieval period as a whole, there's so many more works that still need to be uh, worked on. So, I mean, I, I love reading the Tale of Genji. I love reading the earlier works. But I think rather than creating another translation or another uh, dissertation on the work, we need much more work on, on later periods. So shifting to the medieval period into the early modern period and, and beyond, there's so much out there. Um, that students have just a, a zillion opportunities out there to look at other women. Um, some of these have, have been examined in doctoral dissertations, um, but many of the women of the Mikohidari family have produced other works. We see lots of examples of poetry at all of these um, poetry contests by women, uh, most of that has been not, not looked at at all. And so I think it's, it's really an exciting field to be in, and, and I'd really like to lure more students into it.
1: <laughs> well, Christina, thank you. We, we've talked for about an hour, but there's still a ton of material in the book um, that we've only just barely scratched the surface of. It's a very rich study, and we've really only talked about um, a small portion of the richness that's in there. Is there anything else about the book that you'd like to mention, um, and especially perhaps for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it?
0: Uh, I hope it'll act as a kind of um, to help kickstart further studies in this area. Um, On the one hand, I wanted to apologize for not including a full translation of the career guide that she wrote, um, this uh, nursemaid's letter. Um, But I'm hoping by way of uh, uh, of resolving that, um, that I can produce a translation over the next uh, few months and and publish it um, because this is a really fascinating document which talks about how women learned what they needed to know at the time and how how they could flourish at court so that's that's one thing i'm working on now which i hope to have out and available soon because i I hope it will be useful to people
1: great and along those lines um that's what i was going to ask you next actually um so you've mentioned an interest in wet nurses um doing more work on that and you've just mentioned this translation is there anything else that's um currently inspiring you or basically anything else that you'd like to mention about what you're working on now uh, well, I have two smaller projects
0: and two larger projects on the go. Uh, I'm trying to finish up this um, translation of Menotonofumi, The Nursemaid's Letter, um, although uh, parts of it are very opaque. Uh, and then I'm also working on this series of uh, love poems that were exchanged between Tam- Tameiya and Abutsu. They were recently identified as being between the two of them. So again, we get her creating a kind of tale of love using... Um, poems that go back and forth. After he's dead, it acts as another sort of testament to their relationship. Um, And that's never been... There's no commentaries in Japanese, there's no translation in English, but it offers a really interesting window onto both that genre and um, their relationship. So I'm hoping to finish up that. Um, I'm also working on a um, a broader project looking at Travel and Women, and trying to offer a series of excerpts from travelogs by women that could be used in the classroom for teaching courses on travel. And then finally, I'm uh, embarking on this project looking at wet nurses uh, and trying right now to pin down the parameters of that because there's just so many interesting examples of um, particularly women and their relationship to wet nurses and what it meant to them. Uh, But I am focusing specifically on literary representations of that and and how – that distinct relationship between wet nurses and women carries through history.
1: Fabulous. Well, best of luck on that work. Um, Congratulations on this one. And thank you again, Christina, for talking with me. It's really been a pleasure. And the book is really fabulous. So thank you. Well, thank you
0: for hosting this.
1: You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us. And we'll see you next time.